The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Sometimes I Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Joe Wenke. He's a cultural arsonist and he is an author. And he is his new book is or it's not his new book because it came out in November, but his book that we're going to be talking about today is You've Got to Be Kidding. Uh Dr. Joe Wenke regularly speaks about religious bigotry toward the LGBT community and has written about it not only in his book, You've Got to Be Kidding, but in the Huffington Post in their Politics or Gay Voices section. He's based in New York. I assume it's New York City. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Joe Wenke. Yes, are you a doctor? I'm delighted. delighted to be here, Catherine. Thanks so much. Are, are you a real doctor? Uh, well, I'm a fake doctor, meaning okay, I, have, I, I have a Ph.D. in English, so I'm just, I, I thought that pretentiousness might sell, so I started calling myself Dr. Joe. I love it. Dr. Joe. Okay, That's so it, Dr. Yeah. Joe. You know, Dr. Phil, Dr. Joe, Dr. Laura. I think she got a degree in gym instructing or something I like think that. she did, too. Yes, right. So here I am. All right. So good. Well, I'm going to call you either Dr. Joe or Joe. But That's we're going to fine. Talk My sisters book. call me Joey. You can call me that, too. Okay. Uh, you've got to be kidding. It's a, first of all, I, when we, I said you were an author and a cultural arsonist. Right. But I have to ask you, what is the, before we talk about the book, what is a cultural arsonist? Well, a cultural arsonist is somebody who sets fire to stupidity and burns up bigotry, uh, metaphorically, that is. And that's what I do, so I call myself that. But anybody can do that. We, we all need to step up and call out bigotry where, wherever we see it, wherever we find it and uh, do our best to combat it. So that's, that's my brand positioning, uh, so to speak, and that's how I think of myself. It's just another way of saying I'm a satirist. You're a satirist. Okay, cultural yes. arsonist, I like it. Yeah. Um, so how have you done that, and you've got to, to be kidding. What's the premise of the book? Well, it's kind of weird the way that I came up with writing the book. I woke up one morning, and the first thought that occurred to me was that I would read the Bible, and when I found something funny, I would write about it. And I sort of walked over to the kitchen table in a kind of trance, downloaded an electronic version of the Bible, started reading, and when I got to the Adam and Eve story, I wrote the first sketch. And I wrote more than 70 sketches, like emails, really fast in just a couple of weeks. So this is something that was just sort of inside of me. And trying to figure out, you know, why did I write it? I, I think I wrote it for a couple of closely related reasons. One... I wanted to expose the absurdity of the Bible. I mean, uh, maybe the most absurd thing about it is that there's really little reason to believe that almost anything of major import in it ever actually even happened. It was put together a couple of thousand years ago, 
it's folk tales, it's myths, etc. And yet, so many people still use this as a moral guide. And the second reason is what I see increasingly is people using the Bible to justify their own bigotry, particularly against uh, you know gay, lesbian, and transgender people, and also to perpetuate uh, the subordination of women. So um, I wanted to write about it, but I want to try to do it in a funny way. You know, the religion and politics these days are rife with fundamentalism, but I thought, okay, if you're smart, you have a sense of humor, educate it, you read the Bible, literally, maybe you get satire, not fundamentalism. So that was the whole genesis, so to speak, of the book. So when you're talking about the Bible, because there are two Bibles here, or I think there are two that you're talking about, right? Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah, I'm talking about the whole thing. I the mean, whole, okay. Yeah, and, I mean, the Old Testament, uh, you find uh, prohibitions against homosexuality. There's the famous passage in Leviticus, uh, for example, that, uh, you know, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. And, you know, in fact, it sort of got into the political campaign when uh, it was discovered that Rick Santorum, you know, when he was running for the Republican nomination for president, talked about opposing marriage equality and saying the definition of marriage never included homosexuality. And he said something like, well, that's not to pick on homosexuality. It's not, you know, man on child, man on dog. And everybody was thinking, what the heck is he talking about? But if you go back to uh, the prohibition against homosexuality in Leviticus, the very next sentence, the next verse, is a prohibition against bestiality. And more recently, there have been all sorts of crazy statements about how uh, marriage equality is, is uh, going to destroy the institution of uh, what's called traditional marriage, or I call heterosexual marriage, and that it's going to lead to all sorts of terrible things like polygamy and bestiality. So. A lot of these crazy ideas go back to the Bible, but the New Testament, too, which is supposed to be sort of kinder and gentler, you have the Apostle Paul speaking out repeatedly uh, against homosexuality. And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, the women were left out because they were just viewed as property and didn't matter, and so there was no reason to comment on them. But he actually calls out all the lesbians, too, and says that they, along with their male counterparts who are gay, will be uh, certainly going to hell. So. Those people at that particular time in this little place in history, I get you know this. I mean, which is amazing to me. I mean, this little town where they, people were pretty ignorant. I mean, I, yeah. they didn't even know. I mean, the earth was flat. That's <laughs> amongst other things. But uh, I mean, they had all kinds of prohibitions against. Yeah. Uh, you know, you weren't supposed to. Women were. If you committed adultery, you were supposed to be stoned to death. And I mean, uh, you could go on down the whole list, right? Yeah, and, uh, that's right. Well, you know, in uh, Exodus, there's this guy who goes out and he's collecting some sticks along the edge of the camp, and uh, the guys uh, bring him over to Moses and said, "Look what this guy's doing on the Sabbath." And Moses says to God, "What should we do? This guy was with this guy. He was doing work on the Sabbath." And God says, "Well, you should take him out and kill him, stone him to death." So, I mean, that's the other thing. If you look at the morality of the Old Testament, it's more like tribal code. And the irony is, if you think of, well, who personifies those attitudes today, it's really more the Taliban than anybody else. So, you know, you have... So it's primitive. It's primitive, It's, it's right? absolutely, it's barbaric, it's primitive. Written but, a couple Dr. Of Joe, thousands. I have to ask you this, because people... People, those who believe, and it's, I, to me, I find it amazing that we could still believe this stuff after all these years, but I, I guess it becomes part of our DNA after a while. Uh, but but the, isn't the, I don't know if you call it an excuse, like that God wrote the Bible, whereas 
Yes. Didn't man write the Bible? I mean... Well, that's... See, this is the thing that is most offensive about it all. And I really think if you look at it psychologically, people who are bigoted and hate people who are different from them use the Bible, use their religious beliefs to justify their own bigotry, and they actually say, well, don't look at me. This is from the creator of the universe. So what I say is, well, look, just because God is a bigot doesn't make it right. It just makes him a bad God. (laughs) And that doesn't justify your bigotry. But this is a really serious issue, which I've been thinking about more and more, uh, Catherine. I mean, we don't hear very many people say, you know something, if you think that it is wrong to be homosexual and you base that on your religious beliefs, you're wrong. Now, most people think, oh, if it's a religious belief, you're entitled to that. All of the Republicans are speaking out against marriage equality. You know, John Boehner says, well, this is what my religion teaches me. Yeah. So, Until their gay son or daughter comes out and then it's okay? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. One of the, one of the um, senators had a, you know, a son who came out and so then supposedly it's okay. But fundamentally, which is the right word to use here, we have people who believe that if it's a religious belief, it's okay. Now, if you want to go back in history, uh, let's take the, the Mormons, for example. They used to base bigotry against black people and the fact that in their religion that you know blacks couldn't be priests on what's now viewed as a misinterpretation of an Old Testament passage concerning uh, Noah and his son Ham and determining that blacks were uh, inferior to whites because of Noah's so-called curse on Ham. You know, there are cultures that... Uh, still practice, you know, female genital mutilation, sometimes because of religious beliefs. Nobody thinks that's right. Why do we still, even, you know, moderate people, liberal people still think, well, if you think, and this is the Catholic Church term, that being homosexual is, quote, disordered, and by that they mean contrary to nature, opposed to natural law, i.e. perverted, that's okay. Uh, if you also believe that gay people have no right to marry and you believe, well, you can only have sex within the context of marriage, so therefore, if you're gay, you just never have sex. That's all fine. No, it isn't. And I think at some point in the future, we're going to look back and see that those views religiously based are, are as illegitimate as racist views that are based on the Bible. But that's not the case today. Well, do you think we're evolving, though? I have a more optimistic, I don't know if I do, I think I'm more optimistic, maybe, than you, um, that we are going in the right direction. I mean, I look at the younger generation, and sometimes it's also a generational thing, that the younger generation doesn't quite share the views of, let's say, the older traditionalist kind, you know, Gen X and the millennials. And um, Absolutely. You know, that that's absolutely true. And I'm thinking about this exact issue, and to me the point is, When you're in the midst of change, it's really difficult to determine what kind of progress you're making. So if you take a look at marriage equality, for example, and views on homosexuality, as you're pointing out, among younger people, it's amazing that the numbers of people who think it's okay to marry and there's nothing wrong with homosexuality are going way up. But if we take a look at you know, how laws are going to change. Yeah, all of New England now has marriage equality, a few other states. Once we get beyond the East Coast, the West Coast, and, you know, a state like Illinois, for example, or whatever, what will happen in the rest of the country? What will happen in the Bible Belt? I think we're going to run into a brick wall there, unless there's some sort of a, you know, federal mandate, which I don't think can actually occur, 
with respect to marriage equality. So there's that. I also think that there's been a backlash as a result. We see that uh, LGBT hate crimes are on the rise, and there have been a number of incidents uh, in New York City. And I know people who have been attacked uh, recently, just walking down the street. And um, also there's incredible ignorance and hatred toward transgender people. And so I I share your sense that we're making progress. I have a lot of faith in younger people, but I still think we're a divided culture on this issue. And I think the root of all evil when it comes to um, anti-gay, anti-transgender sentiment is religion. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you, and it is. It's uh, it, so we use religion um, to validate our bigotry. That's what exactly. you're saying. Exactly, that's exactly yeah. it. And you know, I mean, I, I said ironically in one of my Huffington Post pieces. Well, how are we surprised? How in the world are we surprised that a couple of thousand years ago, you know, illiterate, ignorant people living in the middle of the desert? Uh, would be anti-gay, and then I realized that description, except for in the middle of the desert, actually was appropriate to describe a lot of people in our own wonderful uh, country, the United States of America, are ignorant about what it means to be homosexual. The idea that you choose to be homosexual is one of the most absurd things I've ever heard of. How can you choose to be sexually excited or well, attracted? Right. You know, I always ask the question to people who say that, well, then how did you choose to be heterosexual? Yeah, right. When did you, did you make your be... choice? <clears throat> That's right. And, you know, I, I think that there's uh, a difference of opinion uh, among different religious denominations on this whole issue. I think if you looked at the Catholic Church, which uh, at times will say, well, we all have our crosses to bear, uh, you know, I think some Catholics will believe, and, and you know, even some priests, well, yes, you could be born gay. Uh, and, you know, you just have to uh, bear up under that and realize that you can never have sex, never marry. I tend to think the fundamentalists think, no, that would mean that God made a mistake. And so something had to happen to you, and they get into the whole conversion therapy uh, abomination, if I can use that word, which has been directed against uh, gay people. But... You know, they come out with these ideas that are just absolutely preposterous, like going back to the the notion that if two gay people get married, it's somehow going to undermine heterosexual marriages. How does that occur? Two gay guys are living next door to another married couple that's been together for 20 years. They finally get married, and then suddenly, uh, you know, the guy's been married for 20 years, hates his wife, and is making eyes at Fido. I don't know. (laughs) How does that make any sense? It makes no sense. And I don't know what the whole focus on bestiality is among Republicans. I think they ought to look into that at their next convention. Uh, Well, you talk about ignorance. So uh, to me, the best thing to fight ignorance is really education, isn't it? I mean, you have to really start educating people, and that includes young people. That includes, you know, our young people in in elementary school and middle school and high school with books and lectures and all those kinds of things. And I think that... You know, I mean, obviously, you have to start in your own home, and your own house, yep. but I think that's one way of kind of, of combating the ignorance. And, and I think the media, tell, I want to get your read on this. I mean, I think the media has done a good job with, well, not always, but with Will and Grace, for instance. I mean, those kinds of shows, um, mm-hmm. I, I think they're, they're very helpful because it kind of it brings in the general listening public or viewing public. Right. and. Um, 
they're able to see that, um, you know, gay couple is not so scary. They are people, too. Well, exactly. That's why yeah. I wrote, uh, you got to be kidding. I, I'm basically retelling Bible stories in a funny way. You can read them really quickly. It's written for everyone with attention deficit disorder. They're really <laughs> quick sketches. Give us a couple of the Bible stories. Let's talk about specifically in the book some of the stories. Well, let's start with uh, Adam and Eve, which is the first one that, that struck me as funny. And this is what amazed me. If you actually go back and read it, you discover all of these things that you didn't really know. You know, you thought you knew them, but uh, you didn't really know exactly how these stories went. So I go back, I read the Adam and Eve story, and of course, you know, it's all about eating a piece of fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and they know they're in trouble. They go and hide, and God... Almighty, all-knowing, can't find them. And so Adam, I guess, decides, well, eventually he will find us. They come out from hiding, and then you get into what to me is very contemporary. It's a whole blame game. You know, God blames Adam, Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the snake who has nobody to blame. And then God gets really, really angry, and basically it's the fault of the woman, uh, Eve. Uh, because she was the one who seduced the man. Well, you and always blame mommy. <laughs> that, that's right. Now, here's the thing. Mo- being a mommy becomes a punishment, uh, because uh, Eve is told by God that forevermore she's going to be subordinate to Adam. All women will be subordinate to men, and she's going to have to bear children. Men will not do it. And childbirth is going to be excruciating. Life is going to be nothing but suffering. And then God, as a, you know, putting the final whammy, decides to invent death. Yeah, well, this is one of his good ideas. You know? That part is true, I have to tell you. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I just found, wow, you go back and read this stuff, and it's absolutely amazing. Because we sort of take all this stuff for granted. If you actually believe that there's a guy, God, who created the whole universe, all of this stuff is his idea. Why do we have to suffer? Well, he thinks it's a good idea. Why do we have to die? Another good idea. Why are women subordinate to men? Well, it was Eve's fault. Original sin, we all share the blame. Well, I wasn't even around then. It doesn't matter. And so you you see the the little seeds of these ideas that have been so powerful that they've been going on for a couple of thousand years. Why do you think that is? I keep going back to that. I mean, why can't people... I think, have a difficult time wrapping their heads around that this is an historic piece that was written in a particular right. time in a particular place by certain people who were probably, what, 15 years old? I mean, well, I, don't know I how think long... it's all about power, power. That's why, you know, one of my tweets is that institutional religion is about controlling your mind, your genitals, and your wallet. To me, that sums it all up. <laughs> uh, it's, it's mind control. It's subordination of women. It's bigotry against people who are different. It's orthodoxy, conformity. Everybody has to believe the same thing, regimentation. So it's really all about control. Well, do you think it was necessary 5,000 years ago and that that's changed? I mean, you had people who were, you mentioned, you said earlier, tribal, maybe, you know, and they needed someone. And so there wasn't chaos, let's say. So they needed somebody to control them, to tell them what to do, to feel that there was some higher power, whatever you want to call it. It made them feel more comfortable. And But that's one question. The second question is, why did it, like, Judaism is 5,000, the Old Testament, 5,000 years old. Why is it still around? Well, I don't know that it was needed, but there's a a very strong urge for power, and people who are a little bit 
innately more powerful have it together will use whatever tools they have to control other people. Uh, you know, it's basically totalitarianism. I, I just think that there's a primitive appeal to all of this, uh, and it is about control. Now, why do people want to be controlled? Because life uh, is scary, if you, and so you need it to... It is, yeah, yeah, it is. But you trade for that, you know, freedom of thought. Uh, you engage in all sorts of uh, guilt and uh, you know, feeling bad about yourself. And, and just going back to the whole prohibition against homosexuality, I really hate the whole phrase, you know, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's even worse to say to a gay person, oh, no, the way that you are, part of your being, is unnatural. Just don't ever have sex and you won't go to hell. I mean, we're talking about behavior there, but to, to actually denigrate somebody for who they are is horrific, and it makes people feel really terrible about themselves. And look at the people who are doing it. Who are, I always look <laughs> oh, yes. at them, and I'm saying, well, who are you? I mean, Exactly. I mean, you know. the Catholic Church is the gold standard for hypocrisy. It's either the straightest gay organization or the gayest, gayest stray organization, straight organization on the face of the earth, talking about the priests. You know, the bishops, the cardinals. Uh, I mean, they have held themselves up as an object of criticism. The child sex abuse scandal. Uh, I mean, if Vegas were to lay over under odds on the percentage of gay priests, what would that be? Kind of an interesting question. How many gay priests are there? I think it's like 90%. But, you know, let's say it's 50 or 60. Why are all these closeted gay men becoming priests? Was there some memo that went out? I didn't get it myself, you know, <laughs> that this is the place to go. If you, and then I, I would also say that the, the Catholic Church is giving homosexuality a bad name because of the whole child sex abuse scandal. And there's some people who have tried to equate that predatory behavior uh, with homosexuality when it's no more indicative of homosexuality than predatory behavior among heterosexuals is. I mean, I was just looking at CDC statistics on rape, and uh, the CDC says one in five women are raped at some point in their lives, and 42% are raped before the age of 18. Well, that's heterosexual predatory behavior. Is that illustrative of normal heterosexual behavior? No. So the Catholic Church is the one giving homosexuality a bad name. They should look at themselves in the mirror. So what's their response to your book? I mean, you're in New York City. Obviously, you're connected to a lot of people, and, and perhaps, I don't know, a lot of people in the, in the church. Uh, what do they say to you? I've had a lot of positive reviews, but honestly, I have not been able to engage uh, a lot of people who are opposed to me. They, they won't even give me time. I was actually booked on a Fox morning show for weeks. I was then ironically bumped because the Bishop of Hartford was going to appear. So at the last minute, they, they bumped me to the next day, and then the executive producer found out who I was, what uh -huh. it was all about, and canceled my appearance. And so we're, we're I'm finding... shocked. Pardon me? <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that there's a reluctance to engage on this issue. I would love to get on to, you know, every right-wing... Uh, you know, Bible-thumping uh, radio talk show and just talk about all of this, because I don't think that these positions are defensible. They really aren't. They, they so, Joe, then why do you think, okay, you got bumped from Fox, obviously. Yeah. Why do you think, the, I saw when the Book of Mormon first came out, and I saw that, I don't know, what was it, two years ago, three years yeah. ago? Um, 
I said, oh, my God, this book, this, this, is only, this could only play in New York, maybe Los Angeles. But, mm-hmm. and, but now that's not true. It's playing in Baltimore, and it's going, I think it's going to be in you know, upstate New York. Why do you think people were able to accept it's really, that, that musical? I mean, it's so irreverent. I think it's yes, terrific, it um, which I think is a good thing. But I, You know, I, I was kind of taken aback by that, because when I saw it, uh, in New York City, it seemed to me like the whole audience was filled with tourists, and they were just laughing and I, I, you know really hard and it, to me, it was almost like whatever happens in Vegas stays in vegas it 's all right to have fun at this musical, but when it comes to a serious discussion or a debate uh, we 're still not there, but maybe there 's some hope in the fact that uh, people from all around the country do enjoy that kind of uh, satire. Well, do we have, or perhaps there needs to be a similar kind of satire using the stage, I mean, uh, that has to do with LBGT issues? Yes. Well, I agree. And I just think the more people uh, come into contact with LGBT people, uh, the more people they know that all of these prejudices are going to break down. I think that that's why young people are changing in their attitudes, and that's why it's important for, for everybody to come out and be honest about who they are. Uh, because I think in the past there were, were so many people who were closeted, you, you found straight people saying, well, I've never even met a gay person, you know? And there could have been a, a brother or a sister who was gay, and they didn't even know it. Yeah, I think that's important, and I, I want to add to that, because I think not. it's important for... for um, for young for young people to come out, but because they now also, I mean, it, it also ties in with the rest of society. I think they can come out because they can feel comfortable in their schools. There's a safe in many schools, there's a, which is a, the Gay Straight Alliance. There are good there are places that they can go to or teachers they can turn to. Yeah. You need some kind of a support, and I think families are also, which is a good, are much more supportive. And I think it's important not only for the uh, for kids to come out, but important for the parents or parent or whoever is there taking care of them to also uh, talk about their children who are gay and to come out also. I mean, I think that's part of the whole process. Well, exactly. And that's why um, I'm in the process of trying to organize a set of resources uh, through my publishing company, which is called TransUber, focused on, (laughs) on how do you help parents who notice that their children may be tending to to identify as gay or or lesbian or transgender, where do you go to help them and support them? And then secondarily, uh, how can you look for the signs of bullying, which goes on throughout life? Uh, It's not just something that occurs when you're in school, you know, for for gay people, for transgender people. Uh, But I do think the more people get to know LGBT people, and uh, a lot of people don't know transgender people and don't understand what it means to be transgender. And again, once you get to know people, you can't really have the same prejudices that you had before. You say, well, you know, that's how my friend is, and he or she is great. Uh, He or she has all of the rights that I have. How can I say, well, that person can't marry, or their love for someone else is somehow to express it as immoral, which is absurd. So 
there's a responsibility on both sides, is what I hear you saying. I mean, because, you know, it's really important for people to, as you say, to express and be who they are and not to hide. Absolutely. For families not to allow that to happen to their kids, that right. they hide or hide as a family. Right. And, uh, and, and because, yeah, because then your neighbor next door said, well, you know, I like it. You know, I don't want to repeat what you said, but it's yeah. true. Um, yeah, he's my friend. And he happens well, to be exactly. trans. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, in some cases, and let's just go back to the issue of transgender people, uh, that they're so marginalized and discriminated against. Uh, there isn't even a word to describe if you're primarily attracted to transgender men or women, as I am. So I came up with, the, you know, the term trisexual because described as the third sex, and it also means you'll try anything, which is true. But doesn't I really thought it was pansexual. Re- What's pansexual? I thought pan- well, that that's uh, being attracted to anyone and everyone. But I, but I'm speaking seriously. I mean, um, I know a lot of transgender women. I'm very attracted to them. There really isn't a word for that. Just as the shift gears, there's no positive word in the English language to describe a person who basically tries to figure out what's true or not based on science and reason and doesn't believe in the supernatural. Oh, you're called an atheist. And even you know, other words that have been used in the past have sort of been co-opted by the right, like secularism or even humanism. So... It, you know, that there's a limitation on language imposed by cultural values that is reflective of the society's biases. And um, I would say the fact that, you know, that this bifurcated view of sexuality, too, really needs to go out the window. I don't think that people are, are simply straight or homosexual in most cases. I mean, does it make any sense that there are six and a half billion people and you're only attracted to somebody of the opposite, you know, biological gender? Now, if you're a man, think of how, yeah. how many uh, unattractive women there are. And if you're a woman, how many unattractive men there are? You're not attracted to one woman, one man. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's the bell-shaped curve. Yeah, I'm, I just think that it's much more complicated. And if we really opened ourselves up to experience, we'd realize we're all just human. And these are just different ways that uh, we divide ourselves from one another. Yeah, I think you're right if we allowed ourselves to do that, but we don't. And we just, I think we're really, I think maybe particularly in our culture, Americans, we're very rigid when it comes to our sexuality in general. I I think that's part of the problem uh, with regard to, you know, anti-LGBT sentiment. I think there's also a lot of confusion and conflict about sex, period. This is still a very closed society, and yet, you know, at the same time, uh, it it can be very open. So we're kind of uh, schizophrenic about sex and and have been for a long time. Yeah, we're very conflicted. I mean, we say one thing, you know, no sex before marriage, and everybody's having sex before marriage, and so then we don't give birth control uh, or inf- even information, or confuse. We, we don't want to give birth control information uh, to high school kids. Ninety yeah. percent of them are having sex. And yeah, exactly, and, and it's hypocritical. It's delusional. I mean, the Catholic Church is still totally opposed to contraception. Virtually every Catholic woman has used contraception at one point or another. And if you don't think Catholic families are practicing contraception, look at how many kids they have. I mean, I come back from come from the old dark days where you know there were. I, I'm the oldest of eleven children. Well, your family from, wasn't practicing contraception. No, not, not at all. Uh, you know, uh, but how many? No, nobody has eleven children. Nobody has even a half dozen children these days. Everybody just you know has one or two. You can't afford to have more. Who doesn't practice contraception? 
the Catholic Church still says that, you know, it's violating nature and the sanctity of marriage. We're going to take a break. <laughs> Dr. Joe Wenke, uh, you're listening, you've got to be kidding. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away because we're going to be back with Dr. Joe. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray and his co-host as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning uh, has been uh, Joe Winky, Dr. Joe. He has a Ph.D. in English. And his book, we've been discussing his book, uh, you got to be kidding. We've been discussing actually a lot of things, but um, just, Joe, to uh, kind of... Uh, catch up on, uh, if somebody's just joining us now, we were specifically talking about the LGBT community and bigotry and religious bigotry in particular, and uh, we use the Bible to kind of validate our religious bigotry. Um, let's go back to the Bible. I, yeah, I want to talk about the Bible because I'm, I'm fascinated with the Bible. I mean, I grew up in a Reformed Jewish household, and um, I'm sort of one of those people who I, I don't... Um, believe anymore. I've sort of gotten away from my beliefs, but the historic stuff in the Bible I think is fascinating. I've been buying all this, these books on the historic Jesus, actually, because, mm-hmm. you know, try, reading the, trying to not actually read the New Testament, but reading the books about the New Testament. So um, how does this, well, you, you know, what you talk about in your book, you've got to be kidding. Let's talk about the New Testament. We've been talking more about the Old Testament and how it promotes this bigotry and intolerance towards women, but what about the New Testament? Well, it's interesting that you said you're reading about the historical Jesus. I'd be interested in talking about what what you found out, because uh, in writing both, you've got to be kidding, in my follow-up book, which is a satirical history of Catholic Church called Potpourri. So it's looking into the historical basis for the Gospels. Now, most of us who are, you know, intelligent and educated use a journalistic standard of validation to try to determine if something happened or not, if something's true or not. There have to be, you know, corroborative eyewitness accounts, uh, corroborating documentary accounts. If you look at the Gospels, which are, you know, the canonical sources of the life of Jesus, they were written anywhere from... 30 to even 60 years after Jesus died, as described in the Gospels, by proselytizers. What's the basis for believing 
in any of those accounts. Then you look specifically at the accounts. There are numerous scenes where you say to yourself, who, who could possibly be the source of that information? Uh, I mean, for example, in Luke's Gospel, you have a number of dreams. An angel appears to Joseph, the foster father of Jesus, in a dream. Well, how do we know about that incident? Who was the source, the angel or Joseph, who disappears after the uh, visitation to the temple when Jesus was 12 years old? Uh, Jesus meets up with the devil in the middle of the desert, and the devil tempts Jesus three times. How do we know about that one? Uh, you know, after Judas betrays Jesus, he feels guilty. He wants to return the 30 pieces of silver. Uh, the chief priests tell him to go get lost, and he goes out and hangs himself. How do we know about that conversation? So I'm baffled by all of this and also by the fact that nobody ever talks about it. I mean, how, why would we believe any of this stuff? And, in fact, the first complete manuscripts of the Gospels... So why do we? You just asked the question. I keep asking that question. I'm amazed. I don't have an answer for it. Uh, you know, all of these supposedly intelligent people just give this a pass. I mean, suppose we heard about Watergate two weeks ago from G. Gordon Liddy. I think we'd get a different account than the Wood, Woodward and Bernstein account. That was 40 <laughs> years ago. Uh, you know, so... I'm not saying that there's a, a comparison there in terms of, you know, the break-in at the Watergate and the Gospels, but really, uh, if you're a, an advocate or a proselytizer, and you're writing about events that took place decades ago, and you're including dialogue, and you're including you know, numerous scenes where there's no possible uh, observer. I mean, the, the story of when Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, to God the Father, please take this cup away from me if, if you can. The apostles are asleep. That, that's one of the big focal points of that scene. He's praying by himself. How do we know what he said? Am I the only one who raises this question? I don't know. No, because I've raised it. <laughs> yeah, and then if you go to the, the um, account of the resurrection, which is supposed to be, according to Christians, the most important event, in all of history. Uh, it's a paragraph long in each of the Gospels, and there are different people there in each account, and something different happens in each account. That they don't agree with one another. Doesn't that matter? So if you're talking to a religious person, or you're talking to a minister, or a priest, or uh, what do they say? I mean, I know... Uh, uh, they I, say that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, most often likes to show up as a bird. The paraclete, the dove. Yeah, so that's another one that I don't understand. Does anybody really think that the Holy Spirit is the equal of God the Father and Jesus? I sort of think of him as like the Fredo of the Trinity. I mean, it's kind of a, an embarrassment. God, God as a bird. But that's the explanation. Uh, it's all inspired. We don't have to have a source. Yeah, I, well, I guess it's an enigma. I don't understand it. That's why, yeah, that's why you're mystery, on the show. Uh, you're supposed yes, to be, right. Yeah. <laughs> For me, a lot of the puzzle pieces are missing, though. But um, anyway, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy if, uh, if there were meaning to life and there's an afterlife. Although, I mean, I, I do have to say one of the most popular ideas in, in all of religious thinking is hell. People just love that idea. They think that most people are going there, but not them. Well, that's how I feel. <laughs> there you go. Well, we'd like to send some people there, but I mean, 
that's a very popular idea, so you can understand why people believe in that, because then, then there's ultimate justice for the people that you hate. We create our own stories, I guess. And I think that's it, you know. These are stories that we're telling ourselves, and we have to figure out some way to believe that they're authoritative. So we invent, you know, this cosmic author, and uh, then we justify our own attitudes, in some cases bigoted attitudes, based on these stories. It's all very circular. Yeah, well, let's get back to the bigotry, yeah. LGBT community bigotry. And you mentioned... Um, in the beginning of the show, because we were talking about, I mean, trans, the, I think the group, the transgendered group of, of people um, are really struggling. Um, yes. Yeah, and that's and that's just kind of recent, because I think many people who are transgendered never, ever came out or talked about right. it or their transformation. And so they're just beginning to do that. And right. um, people are, you know, not, for ignorance, I keep, that word keeps coming up, they're ignorant. Right. So um, what do we do? Maybe not to repeat the same thing that helped, helped, happened in the LBG community. You, you know what I'm saying? So because we've, we have made some progress, I still believe yes, that we have. Well, I mean, that's uh, uh, the cover of my book. You've got to be kidding if you have a copy there. Uh, and this isn't really evident to most people, although we uh, put a, a dedication in the new edition, uh, the woman on the cover, who's my business partner, Giselle Extravaganza, is transgender. Now, here's how we came up with that, the cover for the book. We had uh, a guy who was originally going to design it, and he thought, let's have a laughing nun on there. And I thought, oh, that's kind of heavy-handed, etc. But I was sort of intrigued with the nun idea, so I, I bought a nun costume online. I gave it to Giselle, who's a successful fashion model, one of the few transgender uh, fashion models who's successful. Where can we see her? Uh, she she's in magazines. She does a lot of uh, runway work. Uh, if you if you Google Giselle Extravaganza, which is her uh, House of Extravaganza name, she's a legendary figure in the ballroom community. Or Giselle Alicia A L I C E A. She's oh. all over the internet. Uh, she's worked with Patricia Field, you know, who is the costume designer for Sex in the City. Oh. She's worked with uh, Patrick Demarchier, uh, with a lot of. Um, Terry Richardson, uh, she's been in Interview Magazine, Out Magazine. Okay, so she's uh, out there. It's not a problem. Uh, no, she's you a very well-known we uh, transgender model. And so she took a photograph of herself with her phone, and she looked so angelic and beatific. I thought, oh, my God, that's the cover of the book. And if you look at the cover of the book, that's the one we have. She's also going to be in the cover of my next book, Potpourri, as the Pope. <laughs> and so... What, what we're doing here is we're saying this is an image of a beautiful woman. She's a transgender woman. She looks beatific. She looks innocent. She looks magnificent. She is. Transgender people are all of that. Recognize it. Uh, and so it's putting out uh, positive images uh, of people. In fact, I have a couple of other books in the pipeline, but the next one I'm going to be working on I'm going to give it the same name as my publishing company and the initiative I talked about before, TransUber, and it's going to be real stories of transgender people, uh, just talking about their struggles, talking about who they are, their aspirations, you know, their dreams. Uh, and now we need a TV series to follow up on that. I mean, it would be magnificent because, you know, it's not about saying, oh, look at all of these people who are so successful. 
uh, although uh, Giselle is. And actually, she was um, also the subject of a, a documentary by Susie Graff called Lost in the Crowd. She was highlighted because her mother was very supportive of her. And another young transgender woman was highlighted who got no family support. Giselle's a successful model, a painter. Uh, she and I produce events together. Uh, the other young woman committed suicide. And uh, so, you know, there, there are just tremendous struggles and tremendous animosity, uh, and it's it's dangerous walking down the street when Giselle uh, is with uh, some of her friends who don't quote look passable. Uh, they can be walking down the street and people shout, "That's a man," which is just horrific and offensive. And um, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the uh, number of anti gay incidents and anti-transgender incidents has, has been on the rise. Uh, one of Giselle's friends was, uh, in all probability, murdered a year ago, Lorena Extravaganza, and she died in a suspicious fire. She, uh, you know, whoever did that has not been brought to justice. One of her friends was beaten up not once this year, but twice by a mob. Um, first time was in the Bronx. I'm sure the second was in New York City. I don't know which borough. But uh, th this sort of thing goes on all of the time. I just was at a party a couple months ago, and I met a transgendered woman. This was in upstate New York, and it was in Albany, and she actually lives in a very small town. And I, I didn't realize she was transgender. In the course of the conversation, she told me she was. She owns a huge construction company, because then, mm. then I started asking her about her you know, situation in this very small town, and she said, no one messes with me <laughs> or my son. Well, it's, you know, it's amazing. Some people are just very strong, and um, they they do very well. Others are not. You know, it's it's very difficult for some people to overcome all of this adversity. Um, and you know, there's even conflict within the LGBT community with uh, you know gay guys uh, feeling different uh, negative feelings and emotions about transgender. Uh, I've not, I want, I'm glad you brought that up because I've noticed that there's a lot of kind of bigotry. Yes, there, there yeah, is. And nobody the... talks about that either. And uh, you know, Giselle, for example, uh, was went to the, the Harvey Milk School and she was harassed there by a gay guy. And I was with Giselle at a ball, and this is years later, and this guy happened to be there. Uh, this was about a year ago. And he went over to her and apologized and she told me, he said, I want it to be you, which is an amazing statement. Uh -huh. It's a very complicated issue and, and has not gotten much discussion because it's very problematic, I think, within the community. But, in fact, there is a lot of conflict and negativity between gay men and transgender women. And maybe one of the explanations is, you know, some of the gay men feel like maybe they might want to be transgender but haven't done it, or maybe there's a projection that transgender women perpetuate, you know, sort of the drag queen stereotype, which isn't true. You know, I'm just speculating a little bit. I don't have an answer, but it's a fact that it goes on. Yeah, and it is a fact. I mean, I know it is a fact because I've, you know, talked to actually quite a few people, and yeah. I've noticed this, um, not just only on the show, but just, you know, in my personal life. But, yeah, yeah it is an issue. You're absolutely right. Uh, and there's also this oddity, too. I mean, a lot of people are uncomfortable with uh, black people using the word nigger. What about gay people using the word fag? That comes up all the time. Uh, I mean, so there's an awful lot that needs to be reexamined. 
And, uh, you know, is this just trying to uh, use the word and, and reinvent it, which I don't buy? Uh, or is it somehow reflective of a conflict within the community? What What is it? Uh, what about, yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question. I want to, um, I also want to ask you, because oh, I want to get back to the thing, uh, to the, the issue actually about children. Now, if you have a child, and there have been, you know, some shows, and I, you know, I don't know if it's Dr. Phil or, or one of those talk shows, but they've had parents with children on who have, um, come out as transgendered kids are wanting to be t- at a very young age, I guess, even mm-hmm. pre-puberty, I think. Um, so, yeah. Yes. Well, see, that's uh, why I, I want to begin providing resources to parents. There was that couple in Colorado who had a transgendered girl uh, who wasn't allowed in kindergarten to use the girl's bathroom. That became a big, that was a uh, big issue. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's apparent to me that some parents are identifying early on that the children may be transgender or maybe gay or lesbian, it just seems to me like if you're that parent, where do you go? Where do you turn? And it's, it's going to take me a little while to get this going because it's very hard to find the right help. My son is autistic, for example. And if you go online to try to find support and help, you're just sort of overwhelmed because uh, just about every therapist says that they're experts in everything. And even those who do have some experience, you, you try them, and more often than not, they're not the right person for your child. So I, I think it's very hard to find the right resources, but I think it's really uh, imperative uh, that we you know, put out where those resources are, who are those people who could help parents who, who want to support their children. And then on the whole issue of bullying, too, how do you see the signs if you're a parent, and what do you do if you're the one being bullied? Uh, I think these are really important issues that need to be addressed. Well, I think, first of all, you have to start with the relationship with your child. If you have, I mean, you want to build on that relationship so your kid feels comfortable in coming to you and talking yes. to you, let's say, if, they got, if they're bullied, or if they feel, uh, I mean, if they feel that they're gay or lesbian and, and they feel uncomfortable, that they can come and tell you, the parent, or whoever, or the guardian, or whoever's taking yes, care of it. Yes, that's fundamental. You that's have fundamental, to have an open right? relationship. But and getting back to the question of parents, where can they go? Let's say, oh, you know, my my uh, my child thinks that perhaps they're gay or lesbian, they're having difficulty with it. Where can we go as a family, or where can they get? I mean, you can go to a counselor or a therapist, maybe who is um, gay or lesbian themselves yes. or transgendered, because there are therapists who yes, specialize. Absolutely. So that's one way, and that obviously should be up on, which is on the net. Um, so, I mean, that's one resource. Um, at least in, I mean, in big cities, obviously, I think it's more difficult if you live yes. in small communities. Yes, I, I, I totally agree, and I, I just think that uh, it would be great for people to be able to go to you know, a website and find multiple resources uh, close to them that they could rely on uh, to get the right help, to get the right direction. Well, if you go uh, online, do you find multiple resources? You, you do. My point really was, and this is a different issue, but okay. with regard to my son's autism, you find lots of resources, but you don't really know whether they're going to be helpful until you actually... Uh, try them out. I mean, in his case, it took years to get him on the right medication, multiple medication management people, psychiatrists, therapists. A lot of times therapy uh, isn't that helpful. It's a different issue. But, um, you know, it's a start at least to be able to provide, you know, what you hope will be good resources to people that they can then seek out. They could meet with uh, therapists, 
uh, with endocrinologists, if we're talking about uh, children who may trend toward being transgender, so that they can provide support. But it's it's a tough road. Do you remember in the 70s? I mean, maybe you were just born in the 70s. I don't know. but <laughs> No, no <laughs> I'm older 70s, than that. Well. <laughs> there was Renee Richards, and she was, yes. I mean, it's almost like we've kind of gone back, and we were kind of going forward. I mean, she was like a famous tennis player. Yes. The whole controversy, because she had been a man, transgendered, was winning all the women's matches, whether she could win or and she yes. did, didn't she? Yeah. Um, well, and that's was allowed- an issue that you see come up every once in a while, uh, you know, a transgender woman competing. Uh, uh, there was somebody competing in, in sort of uh, boxing matches, I think, uh, in, in women's boxing. And there was a, a guy on Fox Radio who was really nasty about the whole thing. This was a man beating up women. It was disgusting. Uh, so the, a lot of these attitudes are, are very deep and um, are held by very many people. So, you know, I'm, I'm not totally pessimistic. I share your... Uh, Optimism. I do think younger people are much more open and accepting. It's important for people to come out so that you know you know somebody who's gay or lesbian or transgender, and then you you look at the world differently. You look at the issue differently when it becomes personal. You can no longer objectify those people and uh, have a bigoted attitude uh, toward them. Well, but is that it's, how uh, we get through wars? Uh, you know, the, we, we dehumanize the enemy so that we can kill yes, them? Yes, it's and objectification. It's, mm-hmm. And it's saying, as soon as you define somebody as being different, as being foreign, as being the other, that's what so many people do to Barack Obama. Gee, I wonder why. Um, you know, a black man, uh, or actually biracial, with a Muslim name. And so it, once you distance that person and objectify them, it's much easier to hate them because they're different from you. And they're, you know, they're threatening. They're everything that you're not. They're foreign. Uh, that's the, the game we play to you know, and sort of enjoy the, the wonderful experience of hating somebody else. That, that hatred, I think, comes from a projection. This is, you know, um, the social worker speaking, but I think it's a form of, in some ways, it's self-hatred and, and um, you know, just taking all the stuff that you don't yeah. feel comfortable about yourself and then just projecting that onto other people. Yeah. If you're happy with yourself and you love your life, do you really spend much time putting down other people? I don't think so. Yeah. I agree. Let's talk, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to talk about also, because uh, you're on the Huffington Post, you write regularly for the gay, yes. the gay voices? Yeah. Yeah, and for politics. You know, anything and, I sort of feel like writing about, they put it up there, thankfully. So is that every day, or is that if you... No, I've been writing like about once a week. Uh, the last week or so I haven't because I'm getting this other book ready, but uh, I've got three or four other articles that I'm ready to, to launch into. Yeah, so, you know, like about once a week I, I post to the Huffington Post. It's, it's a great outlet because everybody has access to it. And um, if I feel like I want to comment on something, I have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, you write, you're so prolific. I mean, you keep writing. You're just talking about here, I wrote one book, now I'm writing another book. How do you do that? Most, you know, I know I have people on the show, it took them eight years to write one book. No, I'm a really fast, I, well, you know, it's weird. Uh, I don't know when it's going to stop, but I, I sort of write like breathing. Uh, literally, I wrote the uh, you got to be kidding in, I think, seven weeks. I read the Bible and wrote over 70 sketches, and then I immediately went into potpourri, and it took me about four and a half months because I had to review 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> and, Did you read uh, the so, Dead Sea Scrolls at the same time? You know, I just sort of get an idea, and I run with it. 
it's sort of like beat poetry. I, I don't think that things necessarily improve if you revise them over and over again. And so I sort of write the way I talk. And uh, so for the time being, it, it's working. You know, it could uh, end any second, and I could have uh, terminal writer's block. So I, I don't want to tempt the non-existent writing gods. But. Joe, Dr. Joe, so were you one of those guys who, when you got your Ph.D., you got it in the three years? It didn't take you five years or ten years to, to write your dissertation? Actually, I was dragging that out because I was sort of a dropped-out hippie, and I didn't want to get a job. So... Uh, <laughs> At that point, no. Where'd you go to college? Where'd you get your Ph.D.? Uh, well, uh, I got my Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut. I got my bachelor's at Notre Dame oh. Catholic School and master's at Penn State, and I taught at Penn State and UConn while I was getting the degrees. Then I went to New York. I became a speechwriter and then a communications consultant. And now, in addition to all this stuff, I own a, an event marketing company. Event marketing? Yeah, we produce events for big companies like uh, Panasonic and Ford, and we did the keynote address for um, the CEO of Panasonic, for example, at the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, so I've been, uh, I have two partners. We've been running the company since uh, the year 2000. So thankfully, it's been pretty successful and continues uh, to this day. We do a lot of stuff for Ford. Uh, Do you like doing that as much? I mean, people look at you and say, wow, you know, he gets to write, which he loves to do, Huffington Post, writes all these books, and then you get to make a lot of money, I would assume, well, I would assume, in doing your <laughs> events planning. I'm making that assumption. Yeah, I mean, it's all about being creative and taking risks, uh, too. I mean, to start the company, I was senior vice president at what was at the time the largest um, event marketing company, Carabiner. It was bought by Jack Morton, and instead of going with the new company, we started our own. So I went from making a lot of money as a senior vice president to not having a job, in essence, by just starting our own company. But lo and behold, it's been successful. So that is so cool. You know, we have to. This is. I'm starting another show with you, and now we have to say goodbye. This is, <laughs> it is it, another whole yeah. other topic. I just want to uh, say, obviously, I want to um, to uh, mention the book again, and we can go online and uh, yes, go to a, your website. You can tell us the website. Um, it's you got to be kidding. The Cultural Arsonist Satirical Reading of the Bible. I'll be coming out with a new book, Potpourri, which is a play on P-O-P-E-R-Y. Uh, the Cultural Arsonist, Ar Arsonist Satirical History of the Catholic Church. And uh, you can find me online, joewanky.org. You can follow me on Twitter at joewanky. And we're launching uh, my publishing company's website, transuber.com. Okay, trans. I love that. Transuber.com. Yes, you can I'm find. I'm Post too, so I'm all over the place. Right. If you want to find me, you can. Good. And bookstores everywhere. Thanks so yeah. much, Dr. Joe Wenke. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 